0: Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his crew to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And they did. In fact, this becomes the outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 6 discuss the church in Jerusalem. Chapters 7 through 12 describe how the gospel branched out into the surrounding neighborhoods, into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 through 28, we're shown how Paul took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, all the way to Rome, to the capital of the empire. Paul embarked on three church-planning ventures. In chapter 21, he's on his third expedition, his last lap, so to speak. Paul has just left the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus, and he's heading now to Jerusalem. His desire is to arrive by the Feast of Pentecost. That would be in the late spring. Let me comment a bit on Paul's travels. Paul crossed majestic mountains. He strolled along Mediterranean beaches. He walked marble colossal Greek streets. He viewed amazing buildings in the world's most magnificent cities. Paul witnessed natural beauty and architectural wonders. In fact, Paul could have described enough landscapes and seascapes and cityscapes to fill a travel brochure, a travel brochure that would have made most avid tourists salivate. And yet when you scan Paul's letters and read Luke's accounts of his travels, You'll never find a verbal postcard. Not a single line of Paul's writings is wasted on pointing to his physical surroundings. No, Paul's focus was not on the beaches or the buildings, but on the Lord he served and the souls that needed to be saved. On the road to Damascus, Paul was blinded by a bright light and the glory of our Lord Jesus. And for the rest of his life, he remained blind to everything else other than the Lord and his gospel. I think it's a blindness we all should emulate. Well, Acts chapter 21 begins. Now, it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kaz, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Now, here a map is helpful. Helpful. These are all port cities on what is today the Turkish Riviera, or it's often called the Turquoise Coast. It's in southwest Turkey. Paul and his entourage were skipping along the coastline, looking for passage on a larger ship that could cross the Mediterranean and land them in Israel. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. The Phoenician ports of Tyre and Sidon are in modern-day Lebanon, north of the Israeli border. This was Paul and his pals' destination. They were ultimately headed for Jerusalem. Well, when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And obviously, Paul didn't wait on a first-class cabin on a carnival cruise he hitched a ride on a freighter, a cargo ship. Obviously, the apostle's passion was not how he, it was on who he could reach, not how he could roll. When the ship finally docks in Tyre, it's carried, Paul, 400 miles across the Mediterranean under the island of Cyprus, now to the shores of Phoenicia. And verse four, and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. I'm sure Paul was tired when he had finally reached Tyre. But notice he recharges his batteries, and notice how he does it. Rather than isolate himself, guess what he does? He finds fellowship and finding disciples. Never underestimate the power, the renewing power of hanging out with other Christians. Christian fellowship was strategic, even for a hearty believer like Paul. He found disciples. And I love verse 4. The phrase translated, finding disciples, it implies an extensive search. In other words, Paul went out of his way to locate the local Christians. He had to find fellowship. It didn't just come to him. And this is often what it takes for us to find meaningful fellowship. It takes nothing to attend church, but you have to find fellowship. You have to exert some initiative and search outside of your comfort zone. Often you have to rub shoulders until you find your niche. You know, it's funny to talk to some people who attend our church. They come for several weeks, and they say they've made all kinds of connections. Wow, this is the friendliest church on the planet. And yet you talk to other people, who come for years and still feel like a stranger. They complain because we're so unfriendly. What's the difference? Well, those who really got plugged in went out to find disciples, whereas those who never did sat back and waited to be found. Never forget the vitamin that you need to take to get fellowship, to find friends. Remember what it is. Be one. If you want to find some friends, be one. Well, Paul found disciples, and they had a message for him, verse 4. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, the New Testament scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, he translates through the Spirit as under prophetic inspiration. Earlier in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we're told Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And yet here, apparently, the Holy Spirit throws up a warning sign. Don't go. Thus, a question arises, was Paul obedient or disobedient in going to Jerusalem? And to me, the answer is clear. I have no idea. And I'm not alone. Lots of Bible commentators are divided on this. Good men seem to line up on both sides of the argument. You know, if you've been a Christian for very long, you realize that discerning God's will is not an exact science. Often our vision gets murky. And yet Paul's life gives us hope. Hey, it twists and turns. The twists and turns that are demonstrated in Paul's life, you know, they're encouraging to us because God eventually gets Paul to where he needs to be. In other words, God is faithful. I tell people all the time, I have a lot more confidence in God's ability to reveal his will to me than I do to find it on my own. God is faithful to get us where he wants us to be. If we're sincere, we may not, not know what we're doing or where we're going, but God does, and he can orchestrate and arrange things to get us exactly where we need to be. Verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. I love that. In short order, Paul and the Phoenicians became fast friends. When Paul set out for Jerusalem, the Phoenicians followed him to the outskirts of town. And it's interesting to me, though Paul had rejected their warnings, he's pushing on. He's going on to Jerusalem despite their warning signs. Even though they disagreed, the Phoenicians refused to be judgmental. Rather than get mad because he didn't take their advice, they still love Paul. They still pray for Paul. They still support Paul. I'm sure they trusted his intentions. And they realized that it's up to each believer to follow God's will as they see fit. You might have a friend. They may feel like God is leading in a specific direction. You might not agree, but that's no reason for you not to love them and support them and rely upon God to lead them. Luke continues, well, When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. This was a short voyage down the Mediterranean coast. Ptolemaeus was the ancient name of the Israeli port Akko, nine miles north of modern-day Haifa. And Paul also found fellowship there, at least for a day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Caesarea is another 30 miles south of Akko, It was the Roman governor's headquarters in Israel. And if you've ever been with us to Caesarea, you know why Philip the Evangelist settled there. It is a gorgeous seaside village. The water and the sky are the bluest blue. You'd love it to live in Caesarea. And Paul entered the house of Philip, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Paul's host, Philip, appears in the book of Acts three different times. In chapter 6, Philip is one of the seven referred to here. He was one of the first seven deacons in the church in Jerusalem. In chapter 8, he branched out and he led a revival in Samaria. He later led an Ethiopian to Christ on the road to Gaza. And here, he and his family have settled down in the seaside village of Caesarea. And he was a busy man because he was raising four daughters. I only had one, and I had my hands full with her, but he raised four. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Philip's girls were sexually pure, and they were spiritually sensitive. He obviously did a good, God, good job raising them. You know, most dads are always reminding their daughters of God's will. But Philip's daughters were always speaking God's will to their dad and to the church. They prophesied. The Spirit had blessed them with prophetic gifts. What a guy this Philip was. A servant in the church, an evangelist to the lost, and a dad to his four daughters. And I think this is the mark of a great man. Can he juggle all the balls? Can he keep all the balls aloft at the same time? Can he juggle the balls at church and in the world and at home? Is he faithful in all three areas? You know, it's been said, we come into the world head first, we leave feet first, and in between, it's all a matter of balance. Well, Philip lived a blessed and a balanced life. You know, some guys do well in the world, but they fell at home and they neglect their church. Other men serve the church and safeguard their home, but they have no witness to the world. What made Philip great was that he excelled in all three areas. Verse 10, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, we met Agabus back in chapter 11, verse 28, where he predicted a famine. These two verses here in chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, give us a glimpse into the life of the early church in the important role of prophecy. See, the Holy Spirit was active in the church. Through ecstatic messages, God spoke through men and women, through prophets and prophetesses to the church. What is the gift of prophecy? It's God's way to instant message the church. God, I am the church through prophecy. He spoke through men and women specific words to the church for for specific circumstances. And guess what? He still speaks in such ways when we're open to the gift of prophecy. And when Agabus had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now remember, it was common for Old Testament prophets to use visual aids to deliver their message. Remember Jeremiah, he buried a sash. Ezekiel laid on his side and actually dug a hole in the wall of his house. These were all visual illustrations of the message that they brought. Here, Agabus also goes theatrical. He grabs Paul's belt and turns it into handcuffs. There's an arrest in Paul's future if he goes to Jerusalem. Notice now, twice the Holy Spirit has warned Paul of danger awaiting him. Verse 12, Now when he heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. For a sold-out Paul, it was Jerusalem or bust. Nothing was going to persuade him to steer clear of Jerusalem, not even the threat of death. If necessary, he was ready to lay down his life for Jesus' sake. You know, the highest award given by the U.S. government for acts of bravery in battle is the Congressional Medal of Honor. And over the course of our nation's history, 3,522 medals have been awarded, usually by the president. As a matter of fact, one was awarded this past week. It's interesting, more medals of honor are awarded for falling on hand grenades to save comrades than any other act of valor. Since falling on a live grenade is usually fatal, these medals are all awarded posthumous. You know what I mean. (laughs) Yet here, Paul falls on a grenade before the pin gets pulled. He's told his trip is going to end in incarceration, but he doesn't care. He's determined. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, you have to admire his valour. He was a committed man committed to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now apparently, everyone heard the prophecy correctly. If Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be in danger. But they applied it differently. In light of the warning, Paul stiffened his resolve to go anyway. Whereas his pals, his friends, wanted him to reconsider and change his plans. They all understood the prophecy. It had come from God, but they differed in its application. And this highlights how subjective it can be to discern God's will. The same warning can be discerned by one person as a mere caution and another as a stop sign. Paul and his friends obviously disagreed. They even debated the matter. But in the end, they stuck together, and that's the important thing. See, Paul's pals respected their leader. They recognized his authority, and they followed him, even though they disagreed with him. Here's a great lesson for us. What happens when we disagree with someone over God's will in a situation? Especially when that someone is a person in authority. What do we do when our pastor or our boss... Or a parent, perhaps, makes a determination concerning God's will, an interpretation that affects us, and yet we object. We don't agree. I believe Paul's pals had the right approach. They did disagree with their leader, and they weren't afraid to let him know. As a matter of fact, they were quite verbal. They debated the issue. Yet when he rejected their advice, they submitted to his authority, they trusted God to guide him, and they still followed. As a matter of fact, they even helped Paul pack, Luke writes. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. You know, for some of us, this is a tough pill to swallow. It's difficult for us to submit to someone else's authority, especially when we differ with them on a critical issue. Reminds me of the hand dryer in the employee restroom. Above it, a disgruntled worker had written, for a message from the boss, press the button. You, you you get it, you get it, yeah. Hot air, get it. Well, you should have laughed if you got it. Uh-huh. Okay. Obviously, there's some bitterness in this camp, and it would have been easy for bitterness to develop in Paul's pals. It's no problem following until the letter ta- until. The, I'm sorry. It's no fo- it's no problem following until the leader takes a path you don't want to travel. I had a friend once tell me, it's not really submission until you disagree. Isn't that true? Realize I'm not talking about a decision that's unbiblical or immoral or unethical. Those are easy choices. You follow the right principle, not the person. What I'm talking about are these subjective, amoral decisions. What do you do when your pastor or your husband Or your boss chooses a path that you're not so sure about. He even has you pack and carry some baggage. The consequences of the decision are bound to affect you. What do you do? Here's what Paul's friends did. Three things. First, they recognized that Paul's intentions were good. Yes, he might have been hard-headed, but nobody doubted that he was soft-hearted. He wanted to go to Jerusalem because of his love for Jesus and because of his love for the Jews. Second, they might not have agreed with Paul in this matter, but they trusted God to guide him anyway. This is huge. Rather than abandon ship because they disagreed with the skipper, they remember who was ultimately at the helm. Remember on the road to Damascus, God knocked Paul off his high horse. He did it once. His friends figured that God could do it again if necessary. They believed two truths, that Paul followed Jesus and even more so, that Jesus would lead Paul. And then third, I want you to notice, they kept the comma. They kept the comma. Read verse 14, without the first comma. We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. You know, we cease saying the will of the Lord be done. We give up, man. We've wasted our breath arguing with Paul. If he wants to jump off a cliff, let him jump. But thankfully, that wasn't their attitude because they kept the comma. It reads, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. We ceased our complaining and our opinion and gave it over to the will of the Lord. They ceased their debating and gave Paul the benefit of the doubt. Paul's pals were a great example for us. They noted his good intentions. They trusted God to override any misdirection. And they gave Paul the benefit of the doubt. And that's what we should do in similar situations. Verse 16. Now also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Notice this man was called an early disciple. The year now is about 57 AD. Jesus' resurrection had been about 25 years earlier. And there were men and women who had now been believers for over a quarter of a century. They were recognized as early disciples. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brother received us gladly. 65 miles southeast over land from coastal Caesarea to Jerusalem in the mountains. Paul makes the trip and gets a warm welcome when he arrives. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. This James was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. At the time, he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And all the elders were present. And when Paul had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, (laughs) but with a stipulation. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are zealous for the law. There's a warning, Paul. You know the church leaders in Jerusalem they appreciated the freedom that had been enjoyed by the gentiles and they acknowledged that a right standing with God is obtained not by keeping the law but by believing in Jesus they were on the same page yet there were Jewish believers in the church who leaned toward legalism and they had problems with the grace that Paul had emphasized you know this lean toward legalism is what prompted the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to prove to Jewish believers that Jesus is superior to Judaism, that faith in Jesus supersedes the law, that the work of Jesus eclipsed the religion of Judaism. But there were still Jews who were devout to their ancient faith. The leaders go on in verse 21. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. And this just wasn't true. Paul never told the Jews that they couldn't circumcise their sons, nor did he advocate abandoning Jewish customs. If a Jew wanted to maintain his or her Jewishness, then fine. Paul just pointed out that adherence to the law and Jewish custom had nothing to do with being right with God. You could be a devout Jew and still be dead in your sins. Righteousness is not achieved by religious deeds. It's a gift of God's grace. Thus, a right standing with God is both obtained and maintained by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And It was because Paul championed grace that he was branded as an enemy of Judaism. And James knows Paul is headed for a showdown with this Jewish hierarchy. He predicts it in verse 22. What then? The assembly, that is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the same ones who crucified Jesus, must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. James knows what's about to happen, but his response is questionable. He says, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow Take them and be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Now James suggests a way for Paul to show the Jews that he's still supportive of their customs and their traditions. Four men are scheduled to take a vow, a vow of dedication. Here's how it might have worked. They would take some time off from work. They would enter into the temple and they would shave their heads as a pledge to God. Over the duration of their vow, their hair and beard would grow again. At the vow's conclusion, the men would return to the temple, shave their heads and beards a second time, and then offer their shaved hair as a sacrifice to God. And James is saying that if Paul financially supports the four vow takers while they're out of work and even joins them in the ritual, then he could make a statement to the Jews that he wasn't opposed to Jewish ritual and Jewish religion. In James's mind, a simple tip of the hat to the Jews, that would be okay. He saw it as a show of respect that stopped short of compromising the gospel. And apparently, Paul agreed. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, remember what Paul wrote? To the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, Paul was all things to all men. He was willing to build bridges for the gospel's sake. He related culturally without compromising biblically. And this is what Paul believed that he was doing here. James wants to be clear. He's not compromising the gospel. He reaffirms freedom for the Gentiles in verse 25. He says, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And James is referring to the decision that was reached back in chapter 15 by the Jerusalem council. That was already guiding the Gentile churches. We talked about that back in chapter 15. Well, then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Did James' suggestion work? <laughs> no, not hardly. Recall that radical Jews had followed Paul throughout Galatia and Asia, and opposed his teaching in their synagogues. They didn't like it that Paul was offering salvation to Gentiles without requiring them to be Jews. Remember, these men were called Judaizers. Their home base was Jerusalem. And so when Paul entered the temple, they falsely accused him to create an uproar. It's been said everywhere Paul went, he either sparked a riot or a revival. In Jerusalem, it was a riot. Verse 29 tells us what happened. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. It's interesting, the outer court of the temple was actually accessible to Gentiles. It was appropriately called the court of the Gentiles. But when you went deeper into the temple, the second court was called the court of Israel. And a sign hung above the door of the court of Israel, which read, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. A Gentile beyond this door would surely be stoned to death. Now Jews from Ephesus, they recognized Paul's friend Trophimus, and they knew he was a Gentile. And just because they saw him with Paul in the streets that day, they concluded that Paul must have taken him into the temple. It was an assumption born out of prejudice, a hatred for Paul and a desire to find a reason to condemn him. Remember how proud the Jews were of their temple? I mean, it was their temple. It's what set them apart from the Gentiles. It was a nationalistic and a religious symbol for them. And when the Jews heard that Paul had violated that symbol by bringing a Gentile into their midst, it turned the the crowd into a violent mob. They grabbed Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. They planned to stone him in the valley below the Temple Mount. But now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. On the northwest end of the Temple Mount, the Romans had built a fortress. It was basically the police precinct inside the temple. It was there to keep order in Jerusalem. As many as a thousand troops could be stationed in the fortress of Antonio. And when news of the mob reached the Romans, a garrison was dispatched. It arrived in the nick of time to save Paul. Verse 32, the commander immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they, that is the Jews, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Roman soldiers were able to break up an illegal lynching. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. And so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, Away with him! I mean, the Temple Mount was out of control. Police were fighting off a frenzied mob. They were trying to kill Paul. Well, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, oh, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Now, historians tell us that about three years earlier, An Egyptian had led 4,000 Jews outside of the Temple Mount and commanded the walls of Jerusalem to fall down. Of course, the walls stayed upright. The gullible Jews realized that they had been duped. The false Messiah narrowly escaped with his life. But here the commander mistakes Paul for this Egyptian. He thinks the villain has returned to the scene of his crimes. He's trying the same stunt again. But Paul said... I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. In other words, Tarsus was a significant city. It was a Roman city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. You know, I read this, and this to me is incredible poise on the part of Paul. I mean, he's in a pressure-packed situation. If this had been me, if I'd just been roughed up by a mob, if my life was being threatened, my top priority at this point would be to get to safety by any means possible. I'd be begging these Romans to lock me up and save me from the bloodthirsty Jews, but not Paul. His purpose was to preach, and this is his opportunity. Paul came to Jerusalem with a message And he won't be satisfied until it's delivered. He pursues his purpose even in the frenzy of the moment. He's fixated on his goal. Paul was blind to everything else except the love and truth of the gospel. And so when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, And this is the moment that Paul has been waiting on for over 20 years. Paul had once been a temple officer. He had been a member of the Sanhedrin, we believe. In the same temple, he had ordered the stoning of Stephen. Now he finally gets an opportunity to preach to his former peeps, to the temple Jews themselves. He had spoken in Greek to the Romans, but he addresses the Jews in Hebrew in his mother tongue. And he begins, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's laws, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. It's interesting to me. This is Paul's big opportunity. He finally gets to preach to these temple Jews. And I'm sure he's been planning this sermon for years. He's been rehearsing this moment in his mind. What will he say? It's interesting. Rather than expounding Old Testament prophecies, rather than launching into Levitical typology or overviewing God's redemptive plan, he uses a much simpler approach to witness to these people. He shares his testimony. And I just find that really interesting. He tells them what happened to him. This should encourage us. For everyone has a testimony. If you know Jesus, you know what happened to you. Everyone has a testimony. You you can't argue with me. You can argue with me over theology or over history or over apologetics, but you can't deny my testimony. It's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. This is why testimonies are so powerful. No one can dispute the change that Jesus has worked in your life. Paul was a Jew who had studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, one of Judaism's greatest rabbis. And he had adhered to a strict interpretation of the law of Moses. Paul thought he was being zealous for God, so much so that he says, I persecuted this way, remember that was his name for Christianity, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem. To be punished, Paul had served as the high priest henchman. It had been his job to round up the believers for punishment. But Paul got intercepted. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus. At about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, before we go further, let me just clear up a potential misunderstanding. When Luke records Paul's, conver- con- Paul's conversion back in chapter 9, verse 7, He says that Paul's companions heard a voice but saw no one. Here, Paul seems to contradict Luke. He says that they didn't hear the voice. Here's the solution. In Acts 9, the Greek word translated hear means to hear a noise. In chapter 21, it's to hear articulated sounds or words. Evidently, they heard an indistinguishable voice, but they couldn't grasp what was said. Perhaps the risen Lord spoke to Paul in a language that Paul's companions didn't understand. But Paul understood. The Jews he had persecuted, I mean, sorry, the Jesus, the Lord Jesus that he had persecuted was the risen Lord. Verse 10, so I said, what shall I do, Lord? Lord means master, it means boss. If Jesus is Lord and Paul loves God, then he has no other choice but to bow and obey the Lord. And that's what he does. And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Notice Paul's conversion begins with a who, and it ends with a do. At first he asks, Who are you, Lord? Then once Paul's converted, he asks, what shall I do, Lord? And this is how all conversions transition. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you'll want to obey him. What shall I do is our appropriate response. And then verse 11, and since I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. In a physical sense, Paul was blind as a bat. He'd been temporarily blinded by the light, but spiritually, Paul the rabbi had never seen clearer. And then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. You know, the last sight Paul saw before the lights went out was the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Now when the lights come back on, his first sight is to see a faithful servant of the church, this man named Ananias. And then Ananias said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. See, baptism is a symbolic washing, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul was baptized in Damascus, but immediately he returned to Jerusalem to witness to his fellow Jews. For it happened, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Jesus saved him from persecution at that time. You know, Paul assumed that since he thought like a Jew and understood Jewish customs, that the Jews would listen to him, but not so. God used Paul to reach the Gentiles. He would later be called the apostle to the Gentiles. Yet Paul never gave up, fully gave up, trying to reach the Jews. I'm not sure he ever fully embraced his role as the apostle to the Gentiles, for he loved the Jews with all his heart. Verse 19, And so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death. Remember Rabbi Saul before he became Paul, had actually overseen the grisly murder of Stephen. And I was guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Paul actually guarded the warm-up jackets of the executioners who pummeled Stephen with the stones. (coughs) He assumed that the Jews would listen to one of their own. But the Lord had a different plan. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. You know, it's ironic. Where Paul thought that he would be most effective among the Jews, he didn't make a dent. Yet everywhere Paul preached to the Gentiles, revival broke out. Isn't that interesting? It just goes to prove that relevance and relatability are great assets, but they're worthless if you're not in God's will. Was Paul right or wrong to enter the temple and take this Jewish vow? Nobody knows for sure. And they, that is the crowd in the temple, listened to him until this word. What word was that? Gentiles. They couldn't stand it that God would shower grace on the Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. These were all Jewish reactions to blasphemy. The rabbis at the time taught that God made Gentiles as kindlings for the fires of hell, that they were starter logs for hell fire. They considered Paul a heretic for believing that God could save the Gentiles. Well, then the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. The Romans were planning to interview Paul with enhanced interrogation techniques, not waterboarding, but with the flagellum. They were going to brutally beat the information they wanted out of Paul. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, and he just drops this little card, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? You need to know, Paul was no masochist. He wasn't afraid of taking a beating for Christ's sake, but neither does he relish one. If he can avoid physical harm, he sure wants to. And so once again, he pulls out his trump card, his get out of jail free card, He's Roman citizenship. It was against Roman law to scourge a citizen of Rome without due process. When the centurion heard that, that he was a Roman citizen, He went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. The Roman commander had gained his citizenship through a bribe. But Paul, being born in Cilicia, a Roman province, was a citizen by birth. And again, Paul was not afraid to use his citizenship when it helped his cause. Paul was a shrewd dude. Remember, Jesus told us to be smart as serpents. It may surprise you to realize that shrewdness and cleverness can be spirit led Christian virtues also. But then immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The commander realized that he had gone overboard in handcuffing Paul. He wasn't about to add to his liability by beating Paul. And so for the moment, the Roman commander backs off. But as we'll see, Paul's fate is far from settled. So to find out what happens, same time, Same channel next Wednesday.